head off to your seat. That'd be great. We have one announcement today. We've got uh, Christmas service, Christmas Day, 9 a.m. So it's an hour earlier than usual. It'll be a, a, a little shorter because of the Christmas um, service, and it's for everyone. So all the kids will be in here as well. So it's about an hour. It's a great time to celebrate the one whom we're really celebrating, Jesus our Savior, the greatest gift ever given. We'll be today in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you want to turn there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God. You are a king. Thank you for saving us and being glorious in every way. Thank you for your provision of a Savior when we were yet sinners, that you demonstrated your love for us and that you've given us such a great gift in Christ, but also a, a gift that continues to give. Your spirit, your presence, your power, your fruitfulness. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold your glory today, that you would fill us with your spirit and, and cause us to praise you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 5 is where we're starting. I'm really inspired by the story of Aaron Ralston. I don't know if you know him, but he is a hiker who survived uh, the Blue John Canyon in Utah in 2003. So he was hiking solo, and as he was going down this really ravine, his arm was trapped under a 360-kilo boulder in a standing position. And so he tried chipping away at that rock for days uh, with his old knife. And after five nights being isolated in this canyon without water, you know, he finishes water, his food, it occurred to him, if I break the arms of my bone, I can cut myself free. And it took him about an hour, but he did. And then he hiked quite a ways. He repelled 20 meters with one arm. He, he hiked another 11 Ks until he was found by some hikers who called the chopper in because there was a search party for him, and he survived. Uh, so this epic, he calls it an epic in his life, this near-death experience that really filled him with renewed uh, thankfulness and gratitude for all he had in his life, that he, he had a new perspective after that. And he, he had this unique experience, but really this, this desire for survival, this desire for freedom, it's something that we all face in different ways. Uh, none of us have been in this situation, likely. Um, but he said at that moment when he actually cut himself free, and he, he said it was such a feeling, an overwhelming sense of just joy that he was loose, that he was free. And, you know, Jesus has freed us from things that we were stuck in. We had sins that were, they were besetting sins. They were dragging us down. They were pulling us to perdition. And God in his grace, he freed us. We couldn't cut ourselves free. He freed us by giving his life for us. Uh, and he came to set captives free. That's what Jesus came to do. And he, he has done marvelously. And what, what a relief, what a joy it is to know him. And people still suffer today in slavery, um, the oppression of a cruel regime, pain that seems unescapable. But Jesus is our hope even in tough times, even in impossible situations. We can look to him for help and healing, restoration, and praise him that uh, we are truly born again. Now, just because we've been set free doesn't mean that we won't make a sinful choice again or we can't be burdened by sin once more. Tom Brokaw, in a documentary, he said concerning Aaron, he said, a second chance did not mean his old life was over because he kept on hiking and mountaineering and, and doing things. It's like that for us as Christians, too. Just because Christ has redeemed us from sin doesn't mean that we can't become pray to it or go back to it in some way. Uh, we're not immune from making sinful choices. I'm sure we can all attest to that. 
And the church in Asia Minor, they were an example of this because they'd been in bondage to the traditional worship of idols and enslaved to idolatry. They chose to believe in Christ. But the issue was, having been set free from sin and death and idolatry, they turned again to bondage through the law. By keeping the law, they were somehow going to become righteous before God. The law that Jesus fulfilled, they tried to keep. So they were saying, you've got to be circumcised and you have to keep the law. And they encouraged others to join them in slavery to the thing that Jesus freed them from. And G- Paul, he establishes in this book that salvation is by faith in Jesus. And today we hear about what freedom and liberty really looks like in the life of a believer. So starting in Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The terms freedom and liberty, they're really loaded terms today. For instance, in the States, the First Amendment of the Constitution, it provides freedom of the press, freedom to protest, freedom of religion, assembly, and speech. And when people say there's freedom of speech, usually that's to assert their autonomy, their right to self-govern, without uh, punishment or censure. Really, I can do what I want. I can say what I want. I'm free to say whatever I want without being punished for it. So they'll use the term freedom of speech in that way. But the protection from the law is not unlimited because defamation, slander, lying under oath, these are things you say with your mouth, but you can still be prosecuted for them. So the provisions and the legal limits of the freedom of speech, it continues to be misunderstood, and that's true about freedom sometimes in the church today. Jesus has enabled us to stand in liberty and freedom, but it's not freedom to do whatever you feel like doing, whatever you think is best. The irony is, in coming to Christ in freedom, we choose to be his slaves, right? Because we're going to be serving something. We're going to be serving ourselves. We're going to be serving our own desires, our pursuits, uh, everyone in this frame serves and is a slave to something. And we, as Christ's followers, we have great freedom in being his slaves, which is really remarkable. We're, we're born sinners. We're enslaved to sin from the beginning. The Bible says the soul that sins will surely die. That's our wage. The wages of sin is death. When we trust in Christ, we're free from the power of sin, power of death, and the law, the curse that it put us under. We're now free from that through Christ. And we're free not only from the law, but for living a life that pleases God. One that is sober, righteous, and godly. Guzik wrote this. He said, today people live in the headlong pursuit of freedom, which they think of as doing whatever they want to do and never denying any desire. This is a kind of liberty, a false liberty. But it is not the liberty. The liberty is our freedom from the tyranny of having to earn our own way to God the freedom from sin and guilt and condemnation, freedom from the penalty and power, and eventually freedom from the presence of sin. A lot of us have lived under that sort of bondage to try to earn God's approval uh, in different ways, whether it's through pleasing a person or through keeping a command, and we have been under that yoke. And he says, don't be entangled again in that yoke of bondage, that yoke of trying to to think you have to earn the favor of God or salvation depends upon your performance. It's by my promise. It's by what Jesus has done on the cross and the faith placed in him. No one on earth is truly autonomous. The Galatians had made the mistake of forfeiting their freedom that God had given them, and they were entangled in the law in these vain attempts to please God and people. Jesus was a good shepherd. It's like he saw that sheep struggling in the fence, or maybe that sheep had even quit struggling. It had been there for so long. He set that sheep free. He cut away the wires, and he, and then, and then the sheep was like, I'm going to show, I'm going to impress this person who's freed me by showing my strength, by ramming into that fence again, it becomes entangled again. And it's like, that's not smart. Sometimes animals do things that just are not smart. And and you know what? We are not animals, but we do things that are not smart. And we think things that are just ridiculous. You're you're using your brain to think that. 
Why would you use your strength to show how strong you are when you were incapable of freeing yourself in the first place? My brother learned to, to train dogs, and he said, to a dog, the lead is freedom. And it really struck me that the dog is fine to run around the backyard, but you just say the word walk. The dog just gets to a frenzy, like, ah, like don't say the word. He even knows when we spell the word that we're going on a walk. Um, but when I attached that lead to my dog's collar as a kid, he wasn't growling. He wasn't biting me. He wasn't uh, resentful that I was his master and I was making him do something. Now, maybe you have a dog who's like that. I never did, but we'll just continue with that. See, he wanted to go. He wanted to leave the confines of the yard. He wanted to smell the world. He wanted to... I, I don't know what a dog finds so exciting about a walk, but there's a lot to see. There's a lot to smell. There's a lot to experience. And he only can do that with the lead on. Now, there are some dogs that they're, they will come when called every time, and they can be safe around distractions, other dogs and vehicles and stuff. But most dogs, it's for their own safety. It's good to have a lead. And we're like those, we're like, kind of like, like a stray dog who was starved and kicked and kept in a tiny cage and we would have died, but Christ rescued us. He demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to be our Savior. And we get to walk with him everywhere. We get to go wherever he goes, and he comes with us. And because we love him in return for what he's done, we're loyal to him. We obey his voice over all the distractions and the other commands and the things which might draw our attention. And it's not a burden to be connected to Jesus because he loves us. And so it's God's love for us, not law, that compels us to obey him and to do the things that please him. That God's love towards us is our motive and our guide in how we love others, how we treat them. The law is kind of like when a dog's been chained, a long chain in the middle of the backyard. What happens to that dog? inevitably, they are going to get themselves tighter and tighter until they are tangled up. And the only way they can be untangled is when their master goes, what are you doing? Goes back there and untangles them. But see, that's, it's, the law is not caring. It's not loving in itself. It's just a rigid, it's like a chain. Just weighs you down and ties you up. And Jesus is the one who set us free from that. Galatians 5, verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. God commanded Abraham to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, the agreement God had made with Abraham. Uh, and the reluctance of Moses to circumcise his sons was a serious issue in Exodus 4. And it's possible that these Judaizers, these who came later, who followed after Paul, said, hey, circumcision happened before the law. It's really important to keep this law as a sign that you're agreeing to the covenant God made with Abraham as his children. And so, but the, the implication is, if you're going to say that circumcision is necessary for salvation, then you are, you must keep the whole law, because where do you draw the line? It's fine for people to be circumcised. It's perfectly fine for people not to be circumcised. But it's folly to think that through being circumcised, you are righteous before God or it improves your standing somehow with him. That it's necessary to receive any blessing or benefit from God, that you submit to this ordinance and therefore you will receive a reward. Because if you place your faith in your efforts to justify yourself, through circumcision or anything else, he says, Christ will profit you nothing. There's no value there for you in trying to keep these ordinances to justify yourself. In the previous chapter, Paul demonstrated the law of Moses, the grace and truth that came through Jesus. They're distinct from each other. They don't cohabitate together. They're incompatible. Just like Ishmael was the son of bondage and Isaac was the son of promise. If you're trying to prove that your righteousness through keeping the law, guess what? You're not walking in grace. 
and you're not receiving the righteousness through grace, through faith. Again, the motive of the people of why you feel like you must be circumcised, that was a much bigger issue than circumcision itself or whether they kept the Sabbath. In verse 3, it says the law is all or nothing. If circumcision is required for salvation, then what are the other 612 commandments or prohibitions? What are you going to do with those? Where do you draw the line? Exactly where you think it's sensible to draw it, and then congratulations. You have just created another works-based cult that is trying to gain favor from God through your own efforts. Acceptance from God on man's terms. And those are not terms acceptable before God. What the believers ignored is we're all debtors before God with a price we could not pay. No amount of sacrifice we do could prove our worthiness to receive God's forgiveness. We've all sinned. We all have a long rap sheet. I had a, I had a friend, a co-worker, who was um, accused of a crime, and he had, he had priors. He had spent many years in prison over the years before I knew him. And I found it very interesting that they really didn't talk about his current case at all. All they talked about was, oh, he's no stranger to the system. He has priors, so his word is not really trustworthy. So your priors are a really big deal. If you have a clean record and you're brought before a court of law, they treat you very differently than if you have priors. If you have priors and you have a record, they're not going to look favorably upon you. And we're like that guy. We have priors, very long rap sheet, you know, a stack that's just getting bigger. But by God's grace, he has forgiven us. He's saying, cutting your flesh can't cleanse your soul. Doing these things can't undo the wrong. Saying you're sorry to the judge doesn't, doesn't make the crime like it never happened. We need atonement. And we have that through Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. It's only through believing in him that we receive eternal life and forgiveness, salvation. And he gives eternal life to all who ask him. It's so awesome. Galatians 5, verse 4, You have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Paul says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. They were estranged from God because of their sin, but now they were estranged from God thinking that their efforts made them righteous before God. So they were cut off from God by the belief that they could be acceptable by their efforts. To be estranged, it means to be withdrawn or alienated. So they had withdrawn themselves from God. They had alienated themselves from God in an attempt to prove their worthiness before God. They were saved by faith, but they chose to be ruled by the law of Moses. So instead of retaining grace as the principle by which they approached God, it became their own efforts. And that's a really good question for us to consider is do I relate to God on the basis of my effort or on the merits of Jesus Christ and all he accomplished on Calvary and his resurrection and his love for me? Is that the way that I'm relating to God in light of what Jesus has done or what I have done? Can you imagine receiving a really valuable gift and then dedicating yourself to earn money to pay the person back who gave you that gift to show that you were worthy to receive it. Again, one of those things we can do. Jesus did not purchase our redemption with silver or gold. He gave his own blood. He didn't just risk his life. He laid down his life so that we could be alive to Christ. We could never repay Christ, repay God for what Jesus has done. And even if I was to climb up on a cross and be literally crucified, could I replace Jesus to the Father? Certainly not. Can you imagine that? The audacity. That if you were to lose a spouse or a loved one and say, you know what, I'm going to give my life so 
what happened with them, it didn't happen. Or it's okay that that happened. No. Jesus has given his life, and there's nothing that can replace him. There's no amount of my efforts, or even if I gave my life, it doesn't bring him back. He doesn't need me to do that because he has given himself and taken it up again. He's got that power of salvation. It's vulgar. It's so proud to think that we can earn the favor of God or that we can repay God for what he has done That because we owe him something. It's like, well, we owe God everything, but there's no amount of our effort that can ever begin to add to that ledger and make us you know, even. God is so good to us. He's given us forgiveness, freedom from sin. He's given us salvation. He's given us the power to do the the things that please God by his grace. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill us. He's called us into the body. He's adopted us as children. He says, you're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And you are new creations that are born again with whom I am pleased to dwell in the midst of. And I don't just want to dwell in your congregations, but I want to live in you and live through you continuously, forever. So, wow, what a God who would love us like that. I don't love anyone like that. But God loves all of us that way. And he's able to make good on it. Like, you guys have had a desire to show affection or kindness to somebody, but we can't quite convey with words or with actions exactly the depth of feeling or the desire that we have to show, I love you. But Jesus did that on Calvary. And he continues to do it daily because he just gives himself completely to those who will receive him. When we trusted in Christ, we are justified by faith. And he says, we wait for the consummation of our salvation, the return of Jesus, whom we're going to be with forever. And we're eagerly waiting for the appearance of Jesus. We're waiting his return because we'll be glorified together. From our current perspective, we're also being saved, right? He saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us from this body of flesh that we live in. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In our sinful state, we were completely without strength. We were like a man that's already fainted from dehydration and blood loss. And without immediate medical assistance, we were dead. There was no way that we could have found God if we had looked everywhere for him. We couldn't have helped ourselves. We could do nothing to save ourselves. But Jesus came to us and he provided himself for our salvation by grace through faith. And he demonstrated his love by sending Jesus as a baby. So God became flesh, dwelt among us, and he lived a life that fulfilled the law, and he laid down his life in obedience to the Father, and then he rose again from the dead. He died of our place for all the sins that we're guilty of. And he says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We weren't like Aaron Ralston who who, you know, repelled and hiked and, and, and made his way for that chopper that ended up saying him. We were dead in sins. And God has raised us with Christ. He, we were dead and hopeless. He saved us. He's saving us and he's saving us from the wrath that is to come. The dependence and the reliance that we place in Jesus for our salvation and forgiveness, we need to retain that and continue to grow in that faith as we progress in our spiritual life. Because we need Jesus for eternity, not just today, not just to save us and like, okay, good, I'm saved, 
Now I can go back into the canyon and, and do things on my own. No, we need Jesus. We need him all the time. God's grace is amazing because it's the goodness of God offered to sinners who don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be saved. It's the antithesis of the world, what the world calls fair. I heard that the other day on the radio. Like, you know what? This is just not fair. It's not fair, so it's wrong. Well, I don't think those things always go together. Because in this case, salvation is good. And it's righteous. And it comes from a just God. It's not fair. It's grace. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is he gracious? Yes. Salvation is all by grace. God's grace. But through his justice, we are saved. We're justified because of what Jesus has done. It says in Galatians 2.16 that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The justification, God offers it through grace, through faith. Verse 6 of Galatians 5, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So, regardless of law, man, woman, or child, God's given salvation to all who repent of their sin, place their faith in Jesus. Jesus took the Pharisees to task because they were so pedantic to keep the law. They were measuring out their herbs, right? They're, they have a little bit of mint and anise and cumin, and they're like weighing it, making sure they're giving exactly the 10%, maybe a little extra just to be safe. But they were gonna, they were gonna give their amount to God. But they ignored the clear implications, the weightier matters of the law. So they were caring about this really light, insignificant thing to show how righteous and devout and pious they were. But this is what legalism does. It strains out the gnat and it swallows a camel. It polishes and cleans the outside of the cup so it looks, you know, sparkling and, woo, this is great. But inside, it's just a cup of filth. It doesn't clean the inside. Jesus said in Luke eleven forty two, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, but pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The Pharisees believed they were righteous because they were tithing on these herbs, but they ignored the justice and the love of God. And some of the churches in Asia Minor, they were guilty of legalism. They think thinking that circumcision and keeping other commands were keys to spiritual growth and favor from God. Faith working through love was to be the mark of God's people, not a cut on your skin. That is what's to mark. It seems like my mic is just, has a mind of its own. Get that handheld ready, Paul. You never know. It's true that genuine faith is never alone because faith, is evidenced through works. Our belief will impact the way that we live. It's like a hungry person. They're happy to eat their favorite food. But if he's convinced that his food has been poisoned, he won't eat it. Under normal circumstances, he'd delight to eat that food, but he believes it's poison. And if you really believe it's poison, and that poison's going to kill you, are you going to eat your favorite food? No. Not unless you want to die. Most people... They eat not to die. They eat to live. So our beliefs, they impact our action. And if we have genuine faith, yes, there will be works attributed to that. God, he loves us. He demonstrated his love for us. How? By sending Jesus, who went to the cross for sinners when we were without strength. Having received of his love, we should love him and we should love others. God's forgiven us. On the basis of his forgiveness for me, I forgive others, not on their performance towards me. Our words and our actions are not because we must or else, but faith working through love. Following Jesus is a labor of love because he first loved us, not to measure up to show that I'm worthy of that status of being his child. We'll never be worthy of that. Let's rejoice in his grace rather than justifying ourselves. Galatians 5, 7. 
you ran well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not call from him, come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul, as in other places in Scripture, he compares the relationship of Galatians to Christ as runners in a race. And we all have a race that's been set before us, that God, by his grace, enables us to run with endurance. And he says, guys, you started so well. You started your race really strong, a strong pace. You were, your, your eyes were fixed on Jesus. You were, you were caring about the important things. Um, so they were glad to be forgiven of their sin. They were loving one another. They were exercising spiritual gifts. Their fruitfulness in their fellowship. They, they're feeding on God's word. They're serving one another in love. Uh, they're being baptized. They're putting away sin. There's all these signs. There's all these, uh, this evidence in their lives that they are walking with Jesus. And they're experiencing the joy of the Lord even in persecution when, when uh, people are out to get them and they are losing their homes and their livelihoods and they're still rejoicing. And he's like, yeah, there's evidence. You guys started so strong, but you're being hindered now from obeying the truth. Love working through faith. Faith working through love. Becoming distracted with minor doctrines and, and persuaded to return to the law. And just losing sight of Christ entirely, focusing on your own efforts to prove your worth to God and to be deemed righteous before Him. John 1.17. Love this verse. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's been a new thing that God has done when Jesus came. God did give the law, and the law is good. It has a function and a purpose. But grace and truth has come through Christ. And we are saved and made righteous, not by the works of the law, but by grace through faith, by the promise that God made to Abraham. And becoming estranged by thinking that your works can save you and your efforts can make you righteous, that persuasion does not come from Jesus. Jesus will cause us to live righteously, not fleshly. And he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uses this analogy with baking. So once yeast is incorporated into dough, you don't need much of it, but it begins to reproduce as it's metabolizing sugars and releases carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol, tiny little bubbles that cause the dough to swell when there's good gluten that's binding it together and just kind of puffs up. Paul's point is that a little amount of leaven is all that's needed to permeate the whole dough. A little legalism will begin to corrupt your whole walk with Jesus and actually negatively impact the church as well. So in one area of your life, it doesn't remain isolated. It begins to, it begins to affect the way that you think and the way that you relate to God. And this begins to grow and grow and build. And, and usually it's our heads that begin to swell. Uh, because of our knowledge and because of our sacrifice, and we start getting puffed up. But he's saying that leaven needs to be put out, that legalism, that attempt to, to justify yourself before God by the law. Just a little bit is enough to be destructive and damaging and actually keep you from Jesus. So a small departure from the grace of God, it can have catastrophic consequences. During my apprenticeship, one thing that we had to be trained in was confined spaces. And a confined, confined space is basically any area that you do work that your whole body can fit, but there's limited exits and entrances, and it's you're not supposed to be in there for a long time. Because what can happen is, if you're, let's say, cutting or welding or grinding you can have a, a lower oxygen content and pass out. Or if it's a low place in a ship, for instance, there could be some fumes that go down and begin to deprive the area of oxygen. Now, the, the normal amount of oxygen is 21%. If it drops 1% lower, it's considered an oxygen-deficient atmosphere. You're, you're in dangerous territory when it just drops 1%. 
We were always taught that if you see somebody man down in a confined space, you do not go in. Because if you see someone man down and it's an oxygen deficient atmosphere, guess who's going to be laying on top of them or beside them in a couple of minutes? And who knows when the next person's going to come by? So if you see a man down, woman down, you immediately seek help and you make sure that there's oxygen in the space and that's, that's how you're actually going to be helping rather than having two down bodies rather than just one. The crazy thing is, if oxygen is at 22%, it's considered an oxygen-enriched atmosphere, and it becomes combustible. So when you go to strike your, so your welding lead has been sitting in there for your whole break time, and there's been a slow leak of oxygen into that confined space, and you go to turn it on, you, you got your little sparker, boom! I've seen people carried off the ship, burns all over them because they did that and that confined space ignited. So 1%, it's not much. If I was telling you, you'll get 1% interest, you're like, big deal. That's not very impressive. But 1%, when you're talking about oxygen in a confined space, makes a big difference. That's life and death. So it's not okay for that little bit of leaven to enter in and be permeating in our hearts and in our minds and puffing us up, thinking that we are something before God by our efforts. It's by God's grace that we're saved and by whom we stand. He enables us to stand. The dangerous implications of putting aside God's grace, being entangled in the law, in attempt to gain favor from God, it is catastrophic. It, it has eternal consequences. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and after the judgment. And the Bible says that everyone's going to be judged according to his righteousness, not our self-righteousness. His standard is infinitely better than we could make for ourselves. There's going to be plenty of people who believe they're basically a good person and the amount of sacrifices they've made for God are, are enough to get in. That it will somehow, the, bad, the good they've done will outweigh the bad and God will receive them because he's a loving God and he's gracious. But on that day, there will be no salvation. There will be people who say, Lord, Lord, we've done all these things in your name. I was circumcised for your name. name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. And these are legalists. He says, you've been practicing lawlessness. You have departed from grace. Jesus knows who's a sheep and who's a goat. Just like a good shepherd, he looks at them and he knows one from the other. He's not going to be tricked or fooled. And so we need to come to him as sheep of his pasture, one saved by grace. Can you imagine a student in uni who's terribly failed every assessment with like a zero score, just completely bombed every assessment, but they believe they will earn a high distinction because they believe their professor exists. That's awesome. That person needs to go back to primary school or something. <laughs> but that's what we can think about God. Like, oh, I believe that he exists. And so he's going to let me in. Well, on the basis of what? Your righteousness or the righteousness of his son that's been imputed to you by grace through faith? See, that's the only way that we can appear before God and stand. We can expect salvation based upon Christ's merit and the promise of God, not because we've earned it. That's the basis on which we stand. So it's a basis on his promise. Lord, you've said, not my performance, what I've done. So our salvation doesn't do depend on anything we do to earn the favor of God, but he provided that favor by his grace that we receive and walk in. Have you guys ever seen the, the 1971? I was surprised how old it was. Um, the Willy Wonka movie with Gene Wilder, the old classic. I was once Charlie in a school play. Um, so the, the basic story, Willa, Willy Wonka is this reclusive chocolatier. He hides five golden tickets uh, that promise a lifetime supply of chocolate. And there's five kids that get these, one of them being Charlie, kind of the poor kid, the paper boy. The other ones are spoiled and have some serious issues. Um, 
But the deal is, you know, you, you show up and you sign a contract and he takes you on this grand tour and he takes you to these special places where the Oompa Loompas are and you see the Chocolate River and there's, there's, but, but he signed a contract. And there's this final scene where Willy Wonka, he's kind of retired to his office and as a kid it really made me uncomfortable every time I saw that scene. You guys can look it up on your own, but it's quite intense. I never liked anyone screaming at me as a child, and when I saw that, it was just, you know, I was just like, ooh, it kind of made me uncomfortable. But there's this moment where he's like, hey, what about the life science supply of chocolate? You know, what about Charlie? And he's like, you lose, you get nothing. He's screaming at him, you get nothing. And they go, what? You're a fraud. You're a crook. You're a criminal. He's like, no, you signed the contract. You agreed to it. You stole busy lifting drinks. And so you get nothing. Good day. And that's true. That's absolutely true. He wasn't a crook or a criminal. Charlie signed the document. And he pulled out the half a document. He's looking at me. He's reading through it and says, see, it says this and this and this. You broke that. You get nothing. Now, the thing where this is, so that's kind of like judgment. Like he, the judgment came down, but Charlie, he's feeling a bit guilty about taking that everlasting gobstopper and he leaves it. But that was the test, right? So he passed the test and this good deed, it kind of, it, everything that he had done went away. Now, for us on the day of judgment, there's no good deed we can do to make God overlook the fact that we've stolen and we've lied and we've cursed and we've hated and we haven't forgiven, and we've been bitter, and we've been legalistic. We've been all those things. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done that we have eternal life, way better than a a lifetime supply of chocolate. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The will of God is that we would believe in Jesus, that we would trust him, we'd keep trusting him we've trusted him for salvation we'll trust him for the future we'll trust him to uh, that he's justifying us that he's sanctifying us and that he will glorify us as he has said and paul he says i'm confident in the lord in you i'm not really confident in you so much but i'm confident for you in the lord that you're going to repent you're going to realize the error that you've fallen into this trap of this performance trap that you have adopted and that you're going to trust in Christ again. And I'm not sure who led you astray, he says, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So sin, it separates us from God. It leads to judgment, but repentance, admitting that we're wrong, turning from it and doing what's right, it restores our relationship with the Lord. So just like we were estranged from God at the beginning, Even if we become estranged from God through legalism and trying to please God or justify ourselves before God through works and pushing that on others, we can be freed from that too. What a relief. What a joy. When we went to school, we treated assignments differently based upon what it counted for. Right? I mean, if it was an assessment, you knew it was 50% of your grade or 25% of your grade, you spent more time on that than the optional summer homework. That didn't really count for anything. It's like, well, if you want to learn, you'll do this extra geometry or algebra. You'll read all these books and write these essays. And Are they going to be assessed? No, no. It's just for your you know, background information. Well, forget that. You know, I'm not too interested in just my own development. I have to go to school, and so I want to get a good grade. I want to do what's going to actually count, right? And that's the thing. All of life counts 100%. The things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we think, the attitudes that we have, all of those count. They count for eternity. So there is a pass-fail concept with judgment, but there's also a reward concept for believers because we will pass as far as be received into eternity by the grace of God, but we'll also be rewarded in our faithfulness to obey Jesus and to love others as he's loved us. And we can't obey on our own strength. We need him to help us. Verses 11 and 12. 
And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Paul, at one point in his ministry as a Pharisee, undoubtedly he extolled the virtues of circumcision to those who were uh, Jewish and also to those who converted to, to, to Judaism. But after being born again by faith, so it's kind of like if you've written a bunch of articles or a bunch of blog posts or something, and they were to go back into Paul's Pharisee days, they would have a lot of bulletin board material. They could say, see, Paul, he said this. And he said that you should be circumcised and you must be circumcised. So they're quoting Paul back at them. And he's saying, guys, I don't preach that anymore. Jesus has come. I've been saved by grace through faith. I've never preached that you have to be circumcised to be saved. And the fact that I'm being persecuted by those who preach circumcision says, it shows, that we don't agree with each other. The doctrine that I'm teaching is not the doctrine that they are teaching. They don't agree with my message of salvation by grace through faith alone. And he says, the offense of the cross has ceased. The cross is offensive. It's offensive to our nature because it says there's nothing you can do to fix your mistakes. There's nothing you can do to be saved. It offends our our pride that there's something we can do or that we measure up because it says you're a sinner worthy of death. You're not just hard done by, it's not bad luck, but you are worthy of hell because of your sin. It's offensive to our natural thinking that God who created me, before whom I must humble myself, he came as a man, he died on a cross, he rose from the dead, and just by believing in him, I will be saved. And his righteousness will be given to me through faith alone. That's offensive. Paul's a bit cheeky in verse 12. He says, those who preach circumcision, necessary to salvation, I wish they'd go all the way, they'd just dismember themselves. You know, they'd castrate themselves. They'd just be cut off. And and it's a fair point. If, If circumcision is the key to salvation, are you sure you cut enough away? Why not go all the way, man? And and that wasn't really, it was not unheard of in that culture. There were many cults in Galatia that involved ritual castration of male priests, where they would castrate themselves to become priests of the goddess. They weren't made righteous by that, right? Those who were preaching circumcision, it's like, are they now righteous because they did what you're doing? They they actually went further than you went. But that's the law. The law just, it consumes, it it destroys, it just, it's got you under bondage. Now, another layer of Paul's desire for those legalists to be cut off, it's it's from Deuteronomy 23.1, where it says, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So you are actually prevented from fellowship if you were mutilated, considered mutilated. And so he's saying, I wish those people were just cut off entirely from your fellowship, that they weren't involved, because that little leaven, it leavens the whole lump. How much better for them to be born again and to be walking in the grace that God has given them. Again, don't don't misunderstand or be caught up in the, the circumcision issue Again, it's not, it's not to be circumcised or not, but the belief that you must do something or be circumcised to be saved, that's a mutilation of God's grace. That's not what God has commanded. Aaron Ralston, he cut off his own arm so he could be free when it was trapped against that boulder. Jesus chose to be cut off so that we could be grafted in. And that's so awesome that he he died so we could live. So we could be, as Gentiles, grafted into his body, the church, and become co-heirs with Jesus. Isaiah 53, 8, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Could you please turn as we close to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4. 
when Jacob went to work for Laban, he made a deal that he would labor seven years to have his daughter Rachel in marriage. And I love that it says, those seven years went like days because of the great love that he had for her. I think seven years of hard labor, like that doesn't sound fun. It sounds rough. It sounds like a lot of work. But it says it was like nothing because he loved her. And I don't believe it was a burden for Jesus to go to Calvary. So great was his love for us. It was not like pulling teeth for him to go. He went willingly. He went joyfully because he knew what it would accomplish. That's something that he, Moses and Elijah, discussed on the Mount of Transfiguration. All he would accomplish by his decease. He knew it was coming. But it was salvation prepared from the foundations of the world. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are in that age, brothers and sisters, where his name is to be praised, that the riches of his grace are on full display in your life and mine. The law says you have to. Grace says you are free and enabled to. Grace causes the mundane to intersect with divine. It's So the law, think about this. The law obligates me to sacrifice a particular animal of a certain sex or age at a certain time, in a certain way, in a certain place for it to be accepted before God. But by grace, we can be washing the dishes. We can give someone a cold drink at any time, any place, for the thanksgiving and the glory of God. And it's acceptable. There's no animal sacrifice that you can offer that's acceptable before God, even under the law today, because there's no temple. There's no sanctified priests or Levites. But our lives can be a sacrifice of praise, which is what God has called us for. What Jesus has done and who he is, it's a cause to celebrate every day, all day, for all time. And what thankfulness and gratitude it should provoke in us. Let's praise him. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior for the grace you've extended to us. Lord, we were like, just, uh, we were dead and you've made us alive. We were trapped under that yoke of bondage and enslaved to our own desires and lusts, slave to ourselves, but you have set us free. Lord, I pray that the, the reality of the freedom you've given us would just be driven home to our hearts today, that we would rejoice and praise you that we have been grafted in to the family of God, adopted as your children, made heirs with Christ by your grace. Thank you that you have saved us and you are saving us and you will save us and that it's based upon your word and you are so powerful that we can trust you for everything. We are, we are I, I am beyond, words are beyond me, Lord, to explain or to describe my thankfulness toward you. But I pray that you, by your grace, would cause your love to shine through me and through all of us, not just in the Christmas season, but every day in Jesus' name. Amen.